And now please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 34 this morning as we continue our series through this book. Uh, This is a church that's having a number of problems, and Paul's addressed these in this final uh, section in chapter 15. He's addressing confusion about the resurrection. And uh, we saw how he began that argument in verses 1 to 11 of this chapter. He goes back to the basics of the gospel and the significance of Jesus' resurrection. And now he continues that argument here. And we'll read verses 12 through 34. So please give attention. This is the word of God. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ, Lord, uh, in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have taught, fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us as we look at it together this morning. And I will say there's an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. A number of cross-references I'll refer to are also there in the bulletin. Well, last week, uh, the Judicial Committee of the U.S. Senate was interviewing uh, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson for a Supreme Court uh, nomination. And in a particularly fascinating exchange, one senator asked Judge Jackson to define the word woman. And Judge Jackson said she couldn't. And when the senator pressed her 
on, uh, on this. She answered, I'm not a biologist. I'm not a biologist. And if we, are, if we would take the logic of what she said and apply it, uh, we would then say, well, uh, children, you can't tell the difference between a dog and a cat unless you are a veterinarian. Uh, you can't tell the difference between a debit or a credit card unless you are an economist. You can't tell the difference between hamburger and filet mignon unless you are a butcher. And we could go on and on. And that kind of argument is called um, reductio ab absurdum, or um, a reduction to absurdity. And so what that is is the idea uh, that you disprove a proposition by showing that it leads to absurd or untenable conclusions. And so uh, when we apply this to Judge uh, Jackson by saying, yeah, if only biologists can tell us what a woman is, then only vets can tell us what dogs are. That is a uh, reduction to absurdity argument. And what's fascinating is Paul uses the very same kind of argument in the first part of this passage. He, there are people in their church denying the resurrection. They're denying that Christians will be raised again in their physical bodies. And Paul is saying, okay, let's trace that out. If that's true, then what follows from that? And he shows how dangerous uh, that position is. And then he goes on to affirm uh, the, the position that he holds, that the Bible holds, that in fact the promise for all of us is that we will be raised again if we are in Christ. And that's the main point I hope us to see as we look at the passage. This is in your outline. That your resurrection, your victory over death is guaranteed by Jesus. And so then the call is for you to live consistently today as someone whose future is completely secure. And uh, children, if you're going to draw me a picture, uh, I've asked you to draw a dog and a cat. I'm guessing you can tell the difference. I'm taking a, a, a kind of a going out on a limb here. Uh, but you try to draw a dog and a cat and then listen as we talk about how certain uh, your future is in Christ. Well, the first thing I want us to notice is without the resurrection of Jesus, there's no gospel and there's no hope for you. We see this in verses 12 to 19. So again, in verse 12, Paul uh, mentions the problem that he's addressing. If Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, we don't know exactly what they were arguing, but it seems at a minimum they had embraced this kind of Greek idea that looked as the, at, the, at the body as temporary, as, as less than the spirit, and so they would be viewing this as either an impossibility or what's possible as an absurdity. Uh, they would be saying, why, why would anyone want their body back? That's a crazy thing to be teaching because after all, when the spirit is released from the body, now the spirit's free and, uh, and is out of its, its, uh, its prison. And, and so it's possible they were saying this is an absurd idea. It's, it's moving in the wrong direction to get our bodies back. And you'll remember last week we looked at verses 1 and 11 where Paul just starts with the basics. He starts with the gospel. The gospel is good news. It's the good news that Jesus died and rose again. That This was central to the message that Paul preached to them and the message which they received. 
So then in verses 13 through 19, he begins this reduction to absurdity argument. And he says to them, okay, if, if we take what you're saying, that the dead do not rise, what follows? Uh, verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, you, you've said it's absurd, you've said it's impossible. So if dead people cannot be raised, then Christ is not risen. Right? Because Jesus Christ was a real man. And so if you have ruled out resurrection of, of the dead, dead bodies coming back to life, then you have ruled out the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what follows from that? Verse 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. And in the original language, he really emphasizes the word empty. He says, empty is our preaching, empty is your faith, meaning it's vain. It's, it's just a story. There's nothing to it. There's no power in it. Uh, it cannot save anyone. Even worse, he says in verse 15, we are found to be false witnesses. We're, we're not just uh, well-meaning people who are slightly misguided. We are out telling lies. We are giving our lives to preach lies. If we are saying that the dead are raised when in fact, and Christ was raised when in fact, as you say, the dead cannot be raised. Furthermore, as it affects these Corinthians, he says in verse 16, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Now, why is that the case? Well, if Jesus' body is rotting away in the ground somewhere, then Jesus has not triumphed over death Jesus has not been vindicated as the Savior. Jesus is not able to forgive us of our sins. And he is no Savior. And so without a resurrected Christ, you have no meaningful hope of salvation, of forgiveness. And furthermore, he says in verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And so he uses this a couple times in this passage. He refers to people who have died as those who have fallen asleep. And because of Christ, that actually is an appropriate way to describe death. Because in Christ, uh, we fall asleep. And as uh, the Bible says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, It will be like waking up. Uh, from a nap uh, when we come into the presence of the Lord. But Paul's saying any talk uh, of death as falling asleep, if there is no resurrection, is just talk. Those people have perished. They are not coming back. They are lost. And so there is no hope apart from a resurrected Christ. In fact, he says in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. People should feel sorry for us for believing in such a ridiculous delusion that cannot help anyone. Matthew Henry speaking about this says, the doctrine of Christ's death and resurrection is at the foundation of Christianity. Remove this foundation and the whole fabric falls. All our hopes for eternity sink at once. The crucifixion of our Redeemer and his conquest over death are the very source of our spiritual life and our hopes. And that's well said. 
That's where our hope is. Our hope isn't that somehow we'll be able to live a good life or we'll imitate Christ or we'll follow some of his teachings. Our hope is that Christ has done it for us, lived perfectly, died, and risen from the dead. Now, in our youth group, uh, I have to admit, sometimes we're, we're pushed to come up with interesting and fun games to play uh, with the young people. And especially when the weather's not good and we have to play indoors, uh, that sometimes creates challenges. But we're anticipating being able to move outdoors soon. And one of the games I like uh, is a game where you take an American football and you uh, put it on the ground and you divide them into teams and you say, now we want you to kick this into the other team's goal. And so uh, you have the soccer players in the mix complaining uh, terribly. This, this isn't how it works. This ball won't roll. This, this ball, you can't tell where it's going. You, you kick it and it might go anywhere. And that's, of course, the point is to sort of neutralize the soccer players from the non-soccer players so everybody is sort of on equal footing. And uh, so we get to watch and enjoy them trying to make sense of this ball that won't roll like it's supposed to. But whatever we call that, and the soccer players would insist on this, that's not soccer. Whatever it is, it's not soccer. And something very similar is true about Christianity. You take the resurrection out of Christianity, and whatever it is you're talking about, it's not Christianity. It's, it, whatever it is, if it's a life philosophy, if it's uh, you know, do-gooderism, if it's social justice, whatever, it's not Christianity. The Christian faith is rooted in a historical event that Christ did for us. And it's probably true that the Corinthians didn't believe any of these things, right? That, that, that this is why Paul is arguing this way. They, they did believe that Christ has, had risen from the dead, but they just didn't understand how denying that they were going to rise from the dead was also ultimately a denial that Jesus has, had risen from the dead. They weren't thinking it through. And, and I think this is instructive to us. Because just like they lived in a world that thought this concept of the, the, uh, the, uh, an eternal body was crazy, we live in a world in which many things that the Bible teaches are, are thought to be crazy. Right? And, and it can be very tempting for us to sort of try to have a version of Christianity that gets rid of the miraculous, for example. But you cannot do that. You cannot do that and still have the Christian faith. And we have to be very careful about succumbing to the pressures of our culture to modify our faith in ways that are harmful to it and harmful to us. This is what they were doing. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. There is no hope. But Paul goes on, secondly, to show them that Jesus' resurrection guarantees their resurrection and your resurrection. And we see this in verses 20 to 23. So in verse 20, he says, but now, okay, the, the, the preceding paragraph is seven hypothetical statements. If, 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 if. Now he's going to say, this is what I believe, this is what I taught you, this is the reality. Christ has been raised from the dead. And because of that, 
they have hope. In verses 21 and 22, he talks about, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And what he's getting at there is this wonderful concept of representation, that Adam represented all people. All people that are in Adam are bound for death. We, we know that. That's physical and spiritual death. In Adam, uh, all die. But in Christ, that is in all who are connected to Christ, all that Christ represents, there is life because Christ has come and suffered and died in our place. And so this is why uh, verse 20 calls Jesus the first fruits. He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And this is a term that, that, that they would have understood well when the harvest uh, was just getting started. Some of the crops, the early produce came in. Uh, the Jews were actually required to bring some of that and offer it to God. That was a token that those first fruits, that a later harvest was coming and that there was going to be a full harvest. Uh, Gordon Fee, in speaking about this, and this is also in your outline, said, by calling Christ the first fruits, Paul is asserting by way of metaphor that the resurrection of the believing dead is absolutely inevitable. It has been guaranteed by God himself. That's why he's the first fruits. That's why from Revelation, our call to worship, he's the firstborn. Because he's not the only born, he's the firstborn. There are others coming. There are others who are going to be likewise resurrected. Now, verse 23 talks about uh, somewhat about how this will happen. But each one in, its own, in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. This is what it's describing, that those who are united by faith in Christ, to him by faith, when he comes again, which is a, is a, a teaching throughout the New Testament, when he comes again, uh, the Bible says all those who are in him are going to receive their bodies back again. That's when the resurrection is going to happen. And we are going to be a part of what's called the new heaven and the new earth, where he uh, frees our bodies and this physical world from all the vestiges of sin. And by calling him the first fruits, Paul is telling us it's not just that this might happen, it's not just that it's likely to happen, he's telling us that this is absolutely certain to happen. Jesus Christ, because he defeated death, and came back from the dead, you, if you're in Christ, will also defeat death and rise from the dead. And you children, I know some of you, your families have gardens. And um, I know some of you like tomato plants uh, because uh, towards the end of the summer, we're, we're having families bring in all the extra tomatoes and other things because they, they can't even use them all. But when you get those first couple of tomatoes that come in, and you might eat one of those and think, wow, that's really good. That is a guarantee that the rest of the tomatoes are on their way. They're going to be coming later. And there's going to be a whole bunch of them or strawberries or whatever it is. That's the way it works. And this is what God wants us to know, that because Jesus was raised, and, and that's not uh, really a matter for debate. You go back to verses 5 and 6 in the chapter, he talks about this is well attested to. Hundreds of people saw the risen Christ. This really happened. And because that happened, you and I can have absolute confidence that it's going to happen for us also. 
This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That should be our lives, a living hope because of the certainty of our resurrection. So Jesus' resurrection guarantees your resurrection. Thirdly, your resurrection coincides with Jesus' ultimate triumph. So in verses 24 to 28, it describes this process at the end of time when Jesus comes back. It says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. So at the culmination of time, and Jesus comes in essence, uh, gives the kingdom back to the Father, the point is that his rule has been consummated. He has put down all of his enemies. Every uh, competing power in the world is going to be eliminated and, and done away with. In fact, the language here is kind of the language of obliterating. He, he's going to obliterate every power that stands in opposition to him. There will be no rivals. But notice what it says the final enemy that he will destroy is. It says he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death itself is going to be destroyed by the Lord Jesus. This is his ultimate triumph. Verse 27 goes on to say, he has put all things under his feet. That's a quotation from Psalm 8, verse 6, which we'll sing after the service. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, of course, this doesn't mean that God the Father is under his feet in verse 28. Uh, but that the son who rules over all things is going to consummate his rule. And so this is what it says at the end, that God may be all in all. It will be his total and complete victory over all things. Now I put in your outline a quotation from Hebrews 2, verses 8 and 9, because Hebrews 2 also quotes from Psalm 8, verse 6. And in Hebrews 2, Uh, The author says this, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. That's the quote. For in that he put all all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. What is it reminding us? We don't see Christ's rule completely consummated, yet we don't see him ruling over all things. But through his resurrection, he's been crowned with glory and honor. And I put a couple of other cross-references in the bulletin there to show you this is the consistent teaching of the scripture. Romans 1.4, and he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. That's his resurrection. Or Colossians 1.18, he's the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may, may have the preeminence. But understand, as long as human beings are still dying in this world, his rule has not been fully consummated. 
It's not arrived in all its fullness. Death has not been completely destroyed yet. And what Paul is reminding you is that in his death and resurrection, Jesus has set in motion the end of death itself. That process is already unfolding. And we are coming to a time when bodies will never die. People will never get sick and be in pain. Suffering will be no more. That's the end goal. Trying to follow what's going on in Ukraine and uh, wondering, well, wh- how could this end? What are the possible ways this could end? It's hard to imagine the Russians just say, oh, this turned out to be harder than we thought it was, and we just pack up and go home. That's not likely to happen. They've invested way too much at this point. And probably the the best that the Ukrainians could hope for is to kind of grind out some kind of a stalemate, and the Russians say, okay, we'll just stay in this part. We're just going to occupy part of your country, uh, but we'll leave the rest of you alone. But of course, that's, that's, that certainly would end the killing, and that might be positive in the short run. But the Ukrainian people aren't going to be happy with that as a solution. No, what they want is they want the Russians totally defeated. They want the Russians pushed back to Russia. They want the Russians out of their country, never to come back into it anymore. That's what a real victory looks like. And this is what this text is telling you about Jesus Christ. His victory is going to be complete. And he's bringing about a whole world that doesn't have death and destruction and suffering in it at all. But it's going to be perfectly righteous and good and blessed. And it's something he's going to do in his people. He's going to completely remove the effects of sin. And next week we're going to talk, Lord willing, more about what that means for our bodies. But the important thing here is to realize Jesus has tied the resurrection of his people, your resurrection, with his glory. And when he comes back to establish his rule in its fullness, your resurrection is part of that. So that's why we say in your resurrection, Jesus has his ultimate victory and the establishment of his rule in the world. Fourthly, we see here also that the reality of your future resurrection should impact your life today. So Paul continues this argument in verses 29 to 34, and he's really talking about sort of the inconsistent ways that some of them are living if there is no resurrection, as they are saying. So in verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, Why then are they baptized for the dead? Okay, probably one of the most highly debated verses in the whole Bible, uh, not just this book. Uh, What is baptism of the dead? Uh, Some of the commentators list at least 40 different theories about what this means. The the most common one is that, okay, Paul's referring to there was some uh, kind of vicarious baptism that was going on where Maybe loved ones who had become Christians but had not been baptized, uh, sort of were being baptized for a loved one like that, um, and, uh, and Paul's not here condoning it. In fact, Paul, said, Paul talks about they, those people that are doing it, Paul's not doing it, and so we would say he's just using this as an illustration, he's not condoning it. 
the, the challenge with that view is just that there's, there's no record in the Bible or in history of anything like this ever being done. I, think, I don't know if the Mormons were some of the first to uh, develop this, uh, something like this or not. And so as an alternative, and I, you know, we don't have time to hassle through this too much, but some commentators note that the Greek here that's translated in my translation for, and we're kind of reading in place of, could be uh, rendered on account of the dead. They're being baptized on account of the dead. And so some commentators think what's actually going on is it's particular believers or people who have come to faith with a particular fear about death and the future have been encouraged to be baptized because of what they've been taught about the resurrection of the dead. So they're being baptized on account of the promises to the dead. So you have to think about whether that's possible or not. But it does have the advantage of being consistent with what we know about how the sacraments work. They don't work vicariously. And Paul's views on salvation. But either way, the point is the same. They're doing something that makes no sense if there's no resurrection. That's what Paul's saying. And Paul goes on to, to make the similar point when he speaks about himself in verse 30. Why do we stand in jeopardy? Why are we in danger every hour? He says, I affirm by the boasting which I have in, in Christ, in you which I have in Christ, I die daily. If in the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, so he's, he's undergoing persecution in Ephesus even as he writes. If the dead do not rise, what he says, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And here he's quoting from the book of Isaiah, a totally inappropriate response to the situation. And yet Paul's saying, well, if Christ doesn't die, why aren't we just throwing our hands, if, if, uh, if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, if we don't rise from the dead, why don't we just throw our hands up and say we might as well party and have a good time because there's no future in this for us. And Paul goes on then to quote uh, a, a Greek proverb of the time in verse 33, do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. And probably there he's talking about the, they're hanging out with people who are teaching against the resurrection and it's tainted their thinking about what's going to happen to them. And he ends with this exhortation in verse 34, awake, awake, and that could be sober up literally in the original language, get out of your drunken stupor and do not sin. That's, that's fascinating. In the midst of all of this, he appeals to them to wake up and turn away from sin. And, and, and what he's doing to them is telling them to live in a way that is consistent with who they are. With who they are. If you understand that Christ has been raised, that you will be raised, that you have an eternal future, then you ought to live that way. You, you want to be baptized if you're not baptized. You want to live in obedience. You want to turn from your sin. You want to join a church as we had uh, eight people do this morning. There, there's, a, there's a way that we live because we're preparing for this eternal life that God has given us. This is why Paul said in another place, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul, Paul was content to serve the Lord in whatever circumstances he was. And if that included uh, hunger and cold and shipwrecks and being beaten and stoned and attacked, he kept going. 
You have to believe that that's partly because he believed, he believed that he was going to be raised again. And he knew that was a, a certainty in his life. And that had an impact on the way that he lived in the present. The reality of your future resurrection, that should impact your life every day. Are we leaving, living in such a way that we're holding on to this life at all costs? Are we living as people who know we are going to have a renewed, perfected body for all eternity? And that's our final challenge here. Live consistently today as one whose future is certain. The estimates right now are over 4 million people have fled Ukraine in the midst of this war. And I'm sure that number is going to keep going up. There are some people who haven't left. And some of those are people who are fighting. And some of those are people who are helping the fighters. And some of those who are people who are ill or unable to leave. But there's another category of people who haven't left who are men and women serving Christ, staying because of their love for Christ. They're there to minister, pastors, entire churches, ministry organizations. I saw an interview with a young man who was driving to bring people out of parts of Kiev uh, behind Russian lines even. And he'd made 30-some trips driving behind Russian lines just to get people out. And he said, every time I pray, I commit my way to the Lord, but I know I might not come back. A person like that doesn't want to die, doesn't do that because he wants to get caught or get shot, but he's willing to do that, knowing full well what the risks are because he's living in a manner consistent with someone who believes Christ was raised I am going to be just like that. I am going to be raised. My life here and now is not the end of it. And the challenge for us is to live in a way that's consistent with that. How do we get that kind of consistency? Because that's not natural to us. I think it's, we have to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus was the only one who lived a truly consistent life. Even Paul got discouraged. Even Paul had struggles. Jesus Christ lived a fully consistent life. He knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that he was going to be raised after his death. He was so confident he could defiantly say to his critics, tear down this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And so he allowed himself to be deprived of sleep and food, to be beaten, to be spit upon, to have nails drived into his hands, driven into his hands and feet, to be hanging on a cross where his ligaments are tearing and his body's coming apart and he can't breathe, to have a spear thrust into his side and his blood literally spilled, to have his broken body put in the grave. Jesus allowed all those things to happen to him. He didn't have to do that. He allowed that. Because he believed in the resurrection. And you and I, in him, in him, need to develop a similar consistency in our life. Lord Jesus, help me to believe what you say in your word. You've been raised. And in you, I will be raised. And if you're here this morning and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, 
This promise isn't for you yet. This passage said, for those who are Christ at his coming, they will be raised. Jesus stands ready to receive any who would put his or her faith in him. Cry out to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. This promise is yours. Just as Christ was raised, you will be raised also. And by his grace, may you and I be enabled to live consistent with who we really are. Let's pray and we'll ask him to help us. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this work that you've done through Christ. We're so thankful that the Christian gospel isn't a list of things we are supposed to do. It is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust our Savior. We pray you would help us to believe what you say here, that just as he rose, we will also rise. And we recognize we often don't live in a way that's consistent with that reality. We pray for help. We pray that you would help us to believe, but we pray that you would help us, uh, as, as the, Paul calls them to here, to, to obey, to believe this word, to obey, and to live out consistently our faith. We thank you so much, Lord, that our Lord Jesus was faithful in our place, and we pray that through him uh, you would forgive our sins and guide us into obedience. We pray this all in his name. Amen. And now we will sing back our praise to the Lord uh, from Psalm 8. We said that psalm was quoted earlier, uh, speaking about how the Lord put all things under the Lord Jesus' feet and recognized that this means uh, even death itself is conquered by the Lord Jesus. Let's stand and we'll sing Psalm 8, Selection C. (laughs) 